0: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Matthew Pippenberg founded his first hedge fund during the dot-com bubble of the late 90s before transitioning to the management of wealth. He is an active, currently principal at the Swiss-based Matterhorn Asset Management Organization, also author of the book Rigged to Fail, and he regularly talks around the world on market risk and wealth preservation. And he has a loyal Labrador and a beautiful family. So we can finish off the list of things with those. Uh, Matthew, thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio. We love to talk money. We love to try and get our heads around you know, what's going on and, and, and sort of try and see where things are heading. So we appreciate you giving us some time to talk about that here.
1: Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's great to swap thoughts with people around the world and give different perspectives. I think we're all looking at similar forces, so there's a lot to talk about are we in trouble well absolutely and the, it's the proverbial we it's not just in, in in the ECB or the European Union or the central bank in the United States or what's happening in Wellington it's it's happening pretty much globally and there's a lot of fissures in the system it's usually it's usually and historically sourced in the same problem uh, drunken levels of debt. We've seen this from ancient Rome to modern West. We've seen this in 18th century France. We've seen it in 20th century Weimar or Germany, or we've seen it in Yugoslavia in the 90s. When a, when a country gets over its skis and debt, um, it usually results in more centralized controls, more desperate policies, more dishonest leadership, and more uh, drunken, negligent uh, financial and monetary policies. And that's where Wellington is, that's where Washington DC is, that's where Brussels is, that's where Frankfurt is. Uh, It's really quite sad. And as we talked about before this, you have to wonder, is it is it just incredibly negligent practices? Is it intentional practices as you're facing a debt wall? Um, It's a combination of um, really poor leadership um, and uh, whether it's intentional or not, uh, an inevitable direction towards more centralized control, more dishonest politics, more grandstanding with very little substance beneath their feet. And I think the world is catching on to this more and more programs like this or conversations like this. We don't have all the answers, but we're asking the right questions. I think.
0: Yeah. You, um, you put out quite a few options as to what could be uh, sort of pushing us on the course. We're on some, some things are more likely than others, right? I mean, incompetence. Yeah. Okay. But you know, you don't have to keep racking up debt. If you don't want to, you you can have a, a far more conservative <laughs> approach to things. You know where that ends. Yet, right. the, you know, it's like the handbrake has never been applied.
1: So that's not incompetence no. necessarily, is it? No, it really isn't. There's certainly a large level and evidentiary stockpile of incompetence that we can go into. But once you cross the Rubicon of debt, uh, historically, it always us- usually leads to, you know, debt leads to a financial crisis. It always leads to a currency crisis. A currency crisis then becomes an inflationary and then a social crisis. And a social crisis is always throughout history and without exception, followed by extreme control from the political left or the political right. And I think, you know, it's very hard when you politicize everything now. We've politicized science. We've politicized geopolitics. I mean, obviously, we've politicized foreign policy. We've politicized the media. We've politicized our money Um, for a politician in Wellington, left or right, or a politician in Europe or a politician in Washington to get elected um, or stay elected or in in the case of a central banker to get a Nobel Prize. You have to give the people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Most people on the ground, whether they're dairy farmers or hedge fund managers, know that there's too much debt, that inflation is an invisible tax on them. But politicians will find any way to take credit for what's going well and ignore the causes of what's going badly. It's easy to stay elected by going deeper into debt and then monetizing that debt with money your central bank mouse clicks out of nowhere. That works for years until it stops working. And when it stops working, you can blame it on COVID. You can blame it on Putin. You can blame it on the climate. You can now blame it on Martians coming from outer space. You'll find any way you can to distract the people who want to believe and want to trust their government, and for many generations did. I think those days are over. I think more and more people are starting to question the obvious that you can't solve a debt crisis with more debt. You can't get on a platform and social grandstand about, you know, various obvious catchwords or pablums or talking points without talking about the elephant in the room, that our governments and our central planners have stayed elected and kept themselves elected or stayed popular by going deeper into debt, monetizing that debt with mouse click money, and then finding blame everywhere but themselves. All people in New Zealand, in Europe, in America, I think are mature enough to understand and want to hear accountability and straight talk and blunt talk look like a family would do. Honey, we're in too much debt, no vacation this year. Kids aren't getting the car, they're not getting the private school, we can't afford it. We need to make changes in our budget, or we need to find better jobs, or we need to you know, tighten our belts human beings can do this at the family level good businesses can do this at the corporate level governments are almost incapable of that type of accountability and their fear of not being elected by being straight talkers um makes them really uh i think pablum pushers more than honest 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 politicians and um you know again this is rather human all too human problem it's a very political problem but we're hitting a tipping point now, and it doesn't seem like it. It's a frog boil. It's a slow drip. Debt doesn't just crush you overnight. It crushes you slowly. And you know, people in, in New Zealand are starting to feel that. You're grappling with higher costs of living. You're grappling with the invisible tax of inflation. You're grappling with a government that just locked you down for years. Um, you're grappling with distrust. These are things we're grappling with in Europe and in the United States, too. It's very polarized. I think it's a dangerous point, but it's also an interesting opportunity. And we'll see if an honest broker pops out of this, you know, cackling hens of politicians trying to, you know, seek power. Hopefully there's a few among them that actually care about their country more than their own reelection or their own power. That's the great question.
0: Yeah, I think the citizenry is probably up for that. And uh, politicians and the, the power elite, let's say, that you're speaking of there, um, would probably realize that pretty quickly, the the fact that they sort of carry on as they are, as, as shows perhaps how out of touch they are. Huge austerity, though, has to be put in place, doesn't it? You talk about, you know, the family budget, we've got to cut back on this, we've got to cut back on that. This could be potentially a massive jolt, um, a, a feeling of of sort of being the clock being wound back to you know, harder times or, 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 whatever. That is, that's a real conundrum, isn't it? For people who want to make a change. I mean, how do you do that? I'm not asking you to you know, come up with
1: a solution, but that, that is the real, the walking it back. Right. It really is an excellent point you're making. And again, put yourself in the shoes of a politician. If you want to be talking, honestly, you would like to believe that people can nod their heads and agree and say, okay, we're ready for this. Sadly, the history of elections proved the opposite. Those who try to have fireside chats with honest numbers and project a very difficult next two, four, five, six years don't tend to resonate with the audience. So you can blame the politicians, but you have to take accountability as a population as well, because it is human to want to hear what you want to believe or want to believe what you want to hear. But I think it's it, there becomes a point where that becomes... Harder to understand. And I think it's it's the responsibility of the populace, the voting population. It's the it's the it's the responsibility of the dairy farmer or the banker or the lawyer to listen more honestly about the reality of their debt. And uh, in the United States and and globally, you know, since Nixon welched on the gold standard in 1971, which you take the chaperone away from a currency, you take away the gold chaperone, you're a teenager at a party. You can spend as much as you want. You can mouse click money as much as you want. You can go into debt as much as you want. That works. But you know we all know that, that eventually has led to consequences that are now in our face. We can feel it. And I think it's time to stop being teenagers as a voting population and stop time to stop being teenagers as a political organization left or right and start talking honestly about the shocks and the vulnerabilities that this debt has caused us because when you grow debt by 80 times globally and nationally in the US since 1971 look everyone knows debt has consequences i joke all the time in my interviews that if you have a busboy salary but you have a ferrari appetite that leads to real problems down the road. You can get away with that if you have a money printer in your basement and you can click money together. But if that becomes national monetary policy, it's comical. It's very comical. In the long term, it's destructive. In the near term, it can be very, very fun. Ernest Hemingway, who was not a central banker or a politician, said that every country that goes into debt leads to, they always distract the population with war and temporary prosperity. But it always ends in permanent ruin it's the prostitution of the government for the benefit of the few at the expense of the many the many are starting to catch on to this and i think again this is not left or right it's not partisan it's math it's history it's common sense um new zealand in particular has a lot of shocks coming its way it's already had a number of shocks and it's been through and europe and america are no different New Zealand in particular is very vulnerable to China. China is a massive growth story since the 80s. uh, It's gone from a 1 trillion economy to an 18 trillion economy. It absorbs a lot of your exports, but China is getting a head cold. And when China gets a head cold, uh, New Zealand also gets the sniffles. And I'm not talking sniffles. I'm talking almost a sore throat. And there's just time to be honest about these things. In addition to China slowing down, you've got your own rate problems, your own debt problems, your own inflation problems locally. It's at a smaller level in terms of global GDP, but it's the same disease that we have at the World Reserve Currency Home in the United States. And it's the same disease we have in the European Union, which is highly fractured. Again, these are not gloom and doom, let's be permanently negative. These are mathematical realities. We're at debt levels never seen before in history. And our solution to this debt problem globally and in Wellington is to go into more debt and then pay for that debt with monetized fiat currencies. I think a 10-year-old who understood basic supply and demand forces, basic inflationary forces, would see that that's an unsustainable policy. And that's not being sensational. That's not being clickbait. That's not being gloom for doom's sake. It's just being a realist. And I think if the population can face reality, if their political leaders can speak reality, we have a chance to at least deal with this. If we get more platitudes and more excuses and more bureaucrats, we're going to get deeper into this problem, in my opinion.
0: You mentioned, um, uh, I think uh, either I mentioned it in the in the intro or you mentioned it just as we started to chat that you see even more centralized control emerging as the situation becomes more desperate. I guess that's what we're seeing.
1: Well, again, I and I, you know, it's funny. I was I was a lawyer. I was a philosophy major, and then I was a hedge fund manager, but I was very, very blessed in the United States to go to some really good schools with some really good professors. Uh, I, I think being a history major and a philosophy major has done far more from my macro view uh, than being an economist. That you can learn on the job. The, the nuances of history, and I can look back without exception, literally without exception, centuries back or millennial back, again, I, st- I open with this. There is no exception. To any time in history where there's a turning point when a country or a nation or regime or an empire goes into debt the end result always is a currency crisis which is a social crisis which always results in some type of extreme centralization from the political extreme left or the political extreme right and we could go over and over these examples francos spain mussolini's italy uh, obviously hitler's weimar or post weimar germany Uh, the Roman Empire, uh, the failing British Empire, these things happen throughout time. They are precursors to things like Napoleon and Franco. When a currency dies, centralized control comes in. This is not grandstanding. This is historical fact. I see that happening now. I definitely see that happening now in the quote-unquote democracies. The democracy that is the United States is the most famous. It's the most wonderful story. 1776, the first real revolution that didn't result in You know, 13,000 heads being cut off in Paris or the Bolshevik Revolution, which resulted in millions of deaths, the quote unquote successful revolution of the enlightenment of our founding fathers, of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, the Constitution, free expression, uh, free press, habeas corpus. uh, These things were the bedrocks of what we consider ideal democracy. And I am a very strong patriot, a very strong believer in these ideals. I can tell you there is a massive fissure today in 2023 quote-unquote democracy than there was in 1776 America when these ideals were founded you know Benjamin Benjamin Franklin said all republics eventually die by suicide we we don't have a free press we have a censored corporate press and again it's an extreme thing to say but Mussolini defined cap uh, excuse me fascism as the perfect marriage of corporate corporate world and the government world in America now the obvious corporate corporatization of our media has completely truncated and, and distorted messaging The Washington Post is owned by a billionaire. That's not free press. The Wall Street Journal has lost all credibility for critical thinking Americans left or right. So I think we are in a very dangerous place where corporations, centralized control, centralized government, centralized media, even a weaponized justice system now in our politics is making people raise their eyebrows, scratch their heads and ask, even is America, the beacon of democracy, a true democracy, is capitalism, which is Wall Street socialism, true capitalism? These are really hard questions.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what freaks us out, because if, if you, um, obviously, you're, not, you're in France at the moment, but, uh, you know, you as in the USA go down, we kind of all go down. There's n- there was always that buffer, mm-hmm. you know, right. of freedom and ideals and, and power. But uh,
1: if that's not there, what happens, you know? Well, again, you get different expressions of ways to manage large amounts of people. You know, you look at China. I mean, Xi is effectively a dictator. They have a socialist market economy, but it's a party-driven economy. They can manage things more honestly and directly as dictators than you can as democracies. Democracies, as Churchill said, are messy things, but to make yeah. them work, they're still better than anything else. But if we're going to be a democracy, we have to act like one, which means we have to let all views be seen without being castigated as a fascist or racist or closed minded, uh, you know, you know, gloom and doomer. And there's so many things splintering society, uh, social justice, warriors, the woke movement, identity politics. They all have some valid, valid points. I think most people are tolerant. Most people are understanding. But when it's forced upon you, or when it's truncated or edited, or when you feel guilty for speaking your mind, when you self-censor, that is already a bad sign. And then that, when you're that's happening all censor, the time.
0: That, yeah, Matthew, that's happening all the t- where you are, where we are. That's that's the thing that's going <laughs> well, to now, have- right now.
1: We have, hopefully, little green shoots, conversations like this, uh, platforms online that are, haven't hopefully been taken down, whether it's on YouTube or Rumble. There are on the left and the right, from Russell Brand to Tucker Carlson in the West. You know, There are voices of, I think, informed opinion rather than emotional opinion. And again, yeah. you can take it a conservative or a liberal view. I, I remember in the U.S., the days in the 70s of William Buckley and Gore Vidal two very different mentalities very different views but one very left one very right but both with a tremendous amount of respect for facts and informed debate as opposed to just emotional entitlement which we see everywhere now or or no debate or no debate yeah sorry sorry can't talk no can't don't want to go there Yeah, or just insulting each other's past or insulting each other's intellect i think um that's a sad thing that we're seeing more and more. This this kind of clickbait emotionalism, which is really devoid of any real strong understanding of the facts, um, and then a good discussion of those facts would be would be refreshing. The market, the
0: market always knows in the end, don't they? They they they're the first to catch on to the directionality of anything. What is the role of the markets and and business, you know, global finance to play? Can they play a part in correcting this, separate of the political institutions?
1: Ideally, yes. And when you say markets, I'm thinking of free price discovery, supply and demand, Adam Smith, capitalism, which is the, the markets I learned about in school. When I went to Wall Street and won the lottery in my late 20s during the NASDAQ bubble, I kind of saw how the sausage was made. And then later I started to think about central banks. And then I started to think about, um, monetary policy. And frankly, as a true blue capitalist, as a true American believer in these forces, yes, markets have all types of permutations and good and bad forces, but ideally it should be based on true competitive survival of the fittest, um, Uh, merit-driven enterprises whose stock prices go up and down based on their balance sheets and their financial statements and on the leadership of their boards. What I've seen, especially since 2008, but really since the Fed was created in 1913 against the will of the president by a cabal of bankers, what we really have is not capitalism. When central banks can monetize the entire sovereign bond market control rates indirectly by printing money. When you monetize the control and price of the monetary system, whether that's in Europe, America, or New Zealand, when you control yields through central bank policy, you you distort free price discovery at at a dramatic level because the stock market always follows the bond market. Debt is everything. Banking is about credit, not about money. When the cost of that credit gets too high, things slow down. When the cost of that credit is repressed artificially for decades and the money is cheap, then the leverage is everywhere, then bubbles form. And bubbles form at levels that are far greater than they should be naturally. In a prior system, prior to central bank policy, bubbles pop naturally because they got fatter and fatter and they fell under their own weight. We've been able to sustain these bubbles by printing trillions of dollars when needed to artificially repress rates. When you artificially repress rates, the cost of money is cheaper and Wall Street, like human beings, can't help but go deeper and deeper into debt by levering that cheap money. That always has dramatic consequences. The von Mises school, the Austrian school, said you need constructive destruction. You need to have market bubbles pop frequently so that bad bad actors get pushed away and the good actors who have solid balance sheets survive since 2008 in particular, but really since 1913 in general, the central bank has distorted that natural process. It's always providing artificial antibiotics every time the markets get a cold. That ultimately is an inoculation system that creates more illness and defeats the immune system of the natural system. I do not think we have capitalism in America anymore, and I believe in capitalism. Uh, We have the greatest wealth disparity in our history because since 2008, the S&P has gone up 600%. 90% 90% of that wealth is held by the top 10%, those that can lever and inside and work the system. The vast majority of Americans are not benefiting from those inflated stock bubbles. I think that's true in Europe and other places, but that's not capitalism. That is a form of feudalism, in my opinion, in which folks like me benefit the most from rising tailwind driven markets that are tailwind is entirely central bank driven. That's not natural supply and demand. For for over a decade, companies could borrow cheap, buy back their own stocks, inflate their stock prices, tweak their earnings per share data. Uh, we have no respect for monopoly laws or antitrust laws anymore when a few companies and a few individuals own more wealth than half the population. That is feudalism. That's not normal, competitive, merit-driven capitalism. So I would say democracy is... Very much on thin ice, and I think capitalism, as we understood it, is very much on thin ice, and that creates moments for opportunists like Klaus Schwab, or political opportunists. Yeah, what do you make right? of the
0: WEF, Klaus Schwab, who looks like your your classic central casting, Mr. Evil Villain? I mean, you you couldn't sort of make it up; you couldn't write the script, as they say. Um, is that <laughs> sort of like a distraction, or, or or are they? Should we be worried about? people like him and organizations
1: like W E F what's your view? I think it's a classic symptom of a completely distorted, um, uh, financial system. You get opportunists, you get financial demagogues, you get political demagogues who always rear their ugly heads when there's a moment in the sun for them. You know, I've written a lot about Klaus Schwab. He called the COVID crisis, the greatest event in in the century. That's simply not true. It was the greatest opportunity for people like him. Klaus Schwab believes in stakeholder capitalism, which is just a nice way of saying more centralized control of, of, of boards and governments, which is what, you know, Mussolini, Hitler, Franco or, or Napoleon would have said, too, in a sense. They'll they'll take advantage of these opportunities uh, in the name of social altruism or social vision. But it's really a vision for Klaus Schwab. I know a lot of people from Harvard and these fancy schools who are now young leader programs at, at Davos, Um, this is a personal bias, anecdotal. It's not any kind of, uh, you know, empirical evidence. But the the Young Leaders Program in Davos and the folks I know who are there are supposed to represent the best for tomorrow's future, for the economy, for the world, for citizens. The individuals who I know personally who are part of that program were probably the most obnoxiously overt, ambitious people I ever knew in school. Okay. Uh, there's a facade of visionary social uh, vision It really is just a click of very wealthy people flying private jets to Switzerland to find ways to network for themselves uh, from Altman on down. These are people that have like a Trudeau ability to look um, and say and do the right things. But their real motive is human, all too human, Nietzschean will to power. That is a very Mm -hmm. cynical view. I'm sure there are good people in in, in Davos who actually care. But I think they leverage the climate story. They leverage the debt story. They leverage... um, A lot of stories to simply centralize their own networks and opportunistically network themselves to make more money and then have the condescending attitude that they know what's best for the world, whether it comes to climate, whether it comes to geopolitics, whether it comes to governing. And that's a very dangerous sign. And again, all too common throughout history. Uh, whether it's the Jacobins or whether it's the Bolsheviks or whether it's the uh, fascists or whether it's the pseudo-capitalists, they always come in and promise that they're doing this for your own good when it's really about their own power.
0: But of course, our recent prime minister was, was from that club as well. And there are a couple of other politicians who um, have been involved as well. And of course, you remember that famous line of swabs, we have penetrated the cabinet, talking about the uh, Canadian... Yeah. Um, um uh, government. So, um, y- you know, our, our listeners are aware of that. Um, you, The current, uh, um, well, it is a proxy war between Russia and the US. The reason I bring this up is because I think it has just been, um, or, or come through the news in, in the last week or so, that the best performing economy in Europe is actually Russia. Mm-hmm. And here they have been, you know, sanctioned up the yin-yang and and every bit of pressure, cut them off from the Swift system, all of that to try and sort of, I think regime change was the goal. Make life tough for them doesn't seem to have, have worked. How can how can that country are they bucking this whole thing we're talking about? Are they in a different zone? What are they doing differently? Obviously, they have huge resources, the massive country, and they're they're very smart people. But
1: but what's the difference there? Just curious. Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. It's so many levels to it. And again, you have to be careful because if you take a view that's critical of Biden or the West or the sanctions, that that makes you look suddenly pro-Putin um, and autocratic and, 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 and completely blind to reality. There's a number of things wrong with the Ukraine war, in my opinion. Um, first of all, it was an entirely avoidable war, in my opinion. I think if, if, if Putin tried to create a military alliance in Mexico or Canada, America would go crazy. When Khrushchev had missiles in Cuba, Kennedy naturally didn't like that. I think to keep pushing the NATO further, further east into Putin's backyard was something we've known since 2014 was going to push him into a corner. So a good statesman. And Kamala Harris, who'd never been to Europe in her life, is not a good statesman. And Joseph Biden, no matter what your politics, uh, even if you're a Democrat, you have to admit that he's not exactly compass mentis right now. It's an open and obvious joke. So to, to you have to ask yourself who's really in charge of the decisions pre-war when we went into that war. We have a very strong neocon West Point graduate focused cabinet and in Pentagon that has an interest in seeing war expand so countries and companies can profit. That's a very cynical view. And that is the view I hold, and I could be wrong, and it's worth debating. But aside from the fact that this was, in my opinion, an avoidable war, if we had true statesmen prior to 2022, then you have the actual war itself. Uh, Putin did what I think Kennedy would have done and did in, in Cuba in 62. But when you had the war itself, the sanctions were an absolute disaster from the get-go. And we wrote about this from day one, that those sanctions would backfire. Uh, Even Barack Obama in 2015 warned against weaponizing the world reserve currency against major powers. America can bully Venezuela and Iran with sanctions. When you freeze the FX reserves of a major nuclear power like Russia, you take it off the SWIFT system, you, you remove its access to SDRs, Well, that has massive ripple effects. You don't pick a fight. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight with Russia because Russia and I think China have been waiting for decades for a pretext to slowly, not overnight, de-dollarize and look for bilateral agreements outside of the world reserve currency, which will destabilize the global monetary system longer term so putin did what he would obviously do he would look uh into other countries like china for trade agreements they would look outside of the of the BRICS and within the BRICS to slowly and this is not overnight but to slowly de-dollarize i think the recent headlines about the BRICS gold-backed trade currency was hype and i'm a big gold person but i knew that wasn't going to happen in south africa in august i was one of the few who said so um but I did warn from the day the sanctions began that that was as big a watershed um, as the 1971 removal of the gold standard, because you're now forcing a major power like Russia and China. And now with contracts and agreements with Saudi Arabia, which is part of a major oil power, you're slowly changing the domino layout now of currency systems and trade systems. It does not mean the world reserve currency or the U.S. dollar is going to die this year or overnight. It does not mean the end of the U.S. dollar it just means we're moving from a, a a monopolar world reserve finance system to a multipolar system, and that will have long term effects on trade on currencies on shocks to the system near term and long term and that also will weaken the u s dollars' demand and ultimately weaken the u s dollars hegemony and When an America gets weak, it tends to do stupid things when America is looking for distraction, when it's politicians from the Pentagon to the cabinet to the White House are in a pickle or in a corner. They never take responsibility for their stupid policies, but they always distract us in war after war or bad policy after bad policy. And again, I have many friends who are Navy SEALs or Marines or in the US Army. And I, I think they're far more admirable than anyone I've met on Wall Street. But our 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 middle class and our soldiers are, are lions being led by donkeys. I was born during the Vietnam War. I've seen the Gulf War. I've seen the Iraq War. I've seen the war in Libya and Syria. I've seen the war in Afghanistan. And I am a patriot, and I believe in our country, but we are, again, lines being led by donkeys. We have not spread freedom and democracy in any of those country codes where we have, quote, unquote, brought our military might to play. And what we're doing now is pushing Russia and China closer together. Russia and China, Russia and ruble did not die. The Russian economy is like a war economy, and war economies can be profitable economies. What's very tragic is that russians are dying and ukrainians are dying at massive levels it's a human tragedy based on political i think, I think uh, it's arrogance. being called a meat
0: grinder matthew a meat grinder. it's
1: horrible here in europe look we see many many ukrainian uh uh ukrainian citizens been forced out of their country they're almost all women because the men are back home being killed Uh, and again you see russian uber drivers and ukrainian uber drivers in paris and you talk to both and it's it's like listening to second cousins fighting when they're when it's really the problem of their uncles and grandparents fighting old men making decisions bad decisions so that young men can die i think this was is a tragedy at a human level and i have sympathy for both russian and ukrainians soldiers and citizens uh who are dying over a war and look in in europe we know that America helped put Zelensky in power. He's a former television actor, for God's sakes. Uh, he's a puppet of our system. Um, I'm not saying he doesn't care about the Ukrainian people, but he was not given a lot of choices either. There is clearly a proxy war, America trying to slow bleed Russia to a war that actually has backfired. It's not weakened Russia, it's strengthened it. It hasn't killed the ruble. And, and ironically, the dollar's demand is going to get weaker, not stronger. Last year, in 2022, central banks around the world were dumping U.S. treasuries and stacking gold at record levels because they're slowly distrusting a weaponized reserve currency. Again, Obama warned about this. John John Maynard Keynes warned about this. Robert Giffen, an economist, came to our Congress in the 1960s and said, you have this privilege of a world reserve currency. Don't weaponize it because it means you're going to be distrusted. America militarily and financially is no longer the leader it was in 1944. We're no longer the country that is spreading democracy or opening opportunities. We're controlling people and we're threatening people with our currency. I think that's a sad uh, message. It's a sad uh, new direction for a very uh, distorted democratic process and democratic leadership and geopolitical leadership in in the world. And I think um, America will pay for that unless we get better leadership. And our
0: listeners would, um, if they were sitting here saying, ask him something, uh, they would uh, ask me to ask you this. Digital currency, Mm -hmm. a global digital, central bank digital currency, is it an inevitability, a possibility? Um, I, I mean, China's a good model for how you can use a currency to control people and make them kind of behave the way you want them to behave. How do you see that
1: playing out? I describe it as a Trojan horse. I do think sadly it's inevitable. I have a we can talk about how maybe there's some ways we can avoid that, but ultimately it's inevitable. It's been telegraphed and anchored by the IMF, the World Bank, the US Fed for years. Um it is ultimately a Trojan horse. Let's not kid ourselves. The, the, the IMF, the Fed will say, this is an efficient payment system. It's a bank that can never fail. When your assets become liabilities of a central bank, it'll be safer. We won't need to insure your deposits. We can't fail. You'll get better interest rates. You'll get better transactional speed. What they don't tell you is that your, your money is now on the ledger of a, of a central bank and a government that can control it, it will. Turn it on and off, it will. That is incredibly centralized. And that is typical, again, to our point at the beginning of this conversation. As governments get more into debt, they look for more ways to control the population. We saw that with Trudeau's Canada. You saw it with Jacinda Ardern's COVID policy. These are grotesque abuses of power in the name of what's best for you. Central bank digital currency is just another example of that type of Trojan horse, lipstick on a pig policy that makes it look pretty, but if you look under the hood, is quite controlling. I think more and more citizens are aware of that through programs and open conversations, open debates. Um, that may be a headwind to this central bank digital currency outlier, but we're fighting forces that are too big to fight. It's like fighting the tide with a rake. Um, the IMF in 2020, just as COVID conveniently came in to allow for a secret bailout of our bond markets across the country and around the world, is that either stupid policy or necessary policy, which is very debated, was going on in the background? Um, you know, the IMF was already saying that COVID is the equivalent of World War II. COVID now requires a new way to look at debt, a new way to look at currency, a new normal, a new Bretton Woods 2.0 with centralized digital currencies as a big part of that narrative. COVID had just started, the exaggeration, the hysteria, the hype, the planned, in my opinion, very planned um, use of the policies during that crisis to, to roll out central bank digital currency. And I think they compared COVID to World War II. Any of us who live in Europe, and I'm an American with German background, I live in France, which was occupied by the Germans. Tens and tens of millions of people died here. Cities were destroyed. Economies were ruined. Russia, Japan, obviously Europe, Rotterdam, Dresden, Frankfurt, Hamburg. Uh, The suffering of World War II was undeniable. There are graveyards 20 meters from my house which have- uh, Yeah, so to make an equivalent with that- It's insulting. It's insulting.
0: It's it's, It's insulting. You've lost the plot. Yeah.
1: That will be the next crisis to roll out CBDC. Now, I think what will happen is we'll wait until there's a major credit event, a major bond crisis globally. And in the name of that crisis, we'll need to do something emergency measured. You know, things like the Patriot Act or these stupid policies always come after a crisis. And I think central bank digital currency, if it has a chance, will happen when we're on our knees, when the system is failing. The governments will roll that out and tell you it's good for you. In my opinion, just like I think you know, you send to Arden's policy of locking down your population over what is effectively a very bad flu with a very clear uh, case of who is at most at risk, but you threw the baby out with the bathwater. I think they'll do the same thing with central bank digital currency. They will always take advantage of a crisis to roll out a, a controlling mechanism, and they'll justify it. And most people will trust their government, sadly, and believe it's for the best interest. The question is how many people will continue to be that naive? that uninformed.
0: Yeah. I guess that depends on people like us, you know, talking about it and hopefully, uh, distributing it as wide and far as we can. Okay. So when could this moving towards sort of, um, wrapping up our chat, can we put a, like a time span on this? If there is a reset moment coming, is it what a few I years away, a- five years away, 10 years away? What do you think?
1: It's always a mugs game. I think it's getting closer all the time to time it. I, it's a, it's a maybe a dark joke, but it's like the rise of Hitler in the 30s. You know, when's he gonna invade Poland? 33, 35, 36, 38, 39. This couldn't possibly happen. He's crazy. He's wacko. And yet he kept galvanizing slowly power by saying the right things, or people being scared enough to believe the right things and say the right things. I do not know. The simple answer is I do not know when the next credit event. It could literally happen next fall, this fall. Um, I think it's less about what year it is and more about what events to look for. I think as you see yields rising in sovereign bond markets, as you see debt levels increasing, as you see war and sabers rattling and more from the South China Sea to the Ukraine, as you see more and more dysfunction in credit markets and more and more dysfunction in equity markets, when we have another great financial crisis, when the world's at $320 trillion in debt, it won't be a V-shaped recovery. So when you see a major global economic crisis, which to me is inevitable, but that doesn't mean it's standing right at our door today, I don't think it's 20 years out or 30 years out. I think it's, it's, it's right around the corner. I don't know what vent will hit it but it's usually not the one you see coming but it will be in a market crisis and it'll be a global crisis because the, the debt crisis now is not linked to one country or one zone when the markets crashed in 2008 in the us that spread to europe but places like new zealand and australia were buffered because china was growing then at a rapid pace now china's on its knees new zealand is on its knees america is nearly on its knees europe is on its knees so when we have another major global financial crisis, and usually is reflected in the stock market, when, when you start to see visible pain in 401ks and savings accounts and pension funds and inflation eating away, and everyone from, from Wellington to Brussels to D.C. is struggling, I think that's when they roll out this miracle solution in your in the name of your own good. Rather than take accountability. So to answer your question, Paul, I don't think it's, a. It's I can't can't give you the date. I see it inching closer and closer, but it's like being at a Stamptisch in Frankfurt in 1936. So when are we going to go to war with Russia or the the West? When are we going to do the Anschluss? No one would have thought it was 1939. No one knew, but it did eventually happen. Hmm. And that's a dark analogy, but I think we're moving more and more towards that type of centralized control. And it's just a question of when do we cross the border into stupid and more people have to suffer. And I don't know the exact date. Matthew
0: Pippenberg, any final things you want to say or anything we haven't touched on that you think is
1: relevant before we end our chat? Well, I just really enjoy these kind of conversations. and I don't expect anyone to share my opinion or your opinion or anyone's opinion. But I, I really, really recommend that people get more and more critical and informed rather than just emotional. I always believe in looking at both sides of any discussion. If you're pro-Putin, look at Zelensky. If you're pro-Zelensky, look at Putin. If you're pro-capitalist, look at alternative views. If you're pro-Davos, look at other views. Be critical. Uh, be critical of what I have to say. I'm I'm very dark right now, and I hope I'm wrong. But I think the most important thing is that we, we watch less mainstream media Look at more alternative opinions and more importantly, try to discern the facts among the fog of uh, platitudes and political words and try to just stick to fact based thinking as much as you can.
0: Thank you for your time, Matthew. We appreciate the chat, and maybe we can catch up again some other time. It'll be great. I really, really enjoyed it, Paul.
1: Thanks for having me. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.